Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Retired Detective Chief Superintendent Russell Waite, QPM, has investigated some of the most distressing cases involving children in the United Kingdom. And the matter of Christopher Pink was one of these cases. Russell, his team and a group of medical experts from across the country worked tirelessly to show that a young child by the name of Robert Pink had died as a result of being violently shaken at the hands of Christopher Pink. Russell talks us through the challenges of such an investigation from the emotion and the feelings of overseeing medical examinations to the detail required to prove his case in court. Let's talk about your Lee Shakespeare investigation, another quite very interesting one, led to a Channel 4 uh, programme on that particular uh, issue. Uh, do you want to talk us through Lee Shakespeare, that investigation, what it involved, and, and, and your role as the SIO? Yes, I, I was a DCI when it, when it started, uh, that inquiry, and uh, a detective sergeant and a DC turned up in my, my office and said, uh, we've got a case of t two girls that have come into contact with this Lee Shakespeare. And initially we, we thought, or whoever they saw the first on the first occasion, police officer, that it was just a girl that got drunk and thought something had happened to her when she woke up the, the next morning, but she couldn't be sure. Uh, however, we think there's something 
more to it than meets the eye. And I said, okay, let's uh, start to have a look at this. And what subsequently transpired was an investigation into Lee Shakespeare, uh, drug raping uh, a number of women uh, over a period of time and over different areas in in the UK. Uh, And including we had some evidence that he went out to Ibiza and, and drugged a couple of girls there. He was using a drug called GHB, uh, we never recovered that drug, um, but we uh, had him intelligence uh, where he stored it. He st- stored it in a little Optrex uh, bottle, uh, which uh, unfortunately we we missed. But uh, subsequently, we we saw the victims, all of the victims. We we devoted time, and I always said, if you look after your victims, uh, they'll look after you. So if you've got a criminal mm. trial coming up, or you've got a, a criminal investigation. Just look after your victims, you, you know, and I, I learned that from days when I, I worked in child protection as a detective sergeant is that your victims are going through awful experiences. Don't treat them as just another bit of your investigation. They're the key pillar to your investigation. They're eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're the, the key. And so um, we did. The team looked after those victims. Uh, really well. They all came and gave evidence. We had a six-week trial at Leicester Crown Court, and he was subsequently uh, convicted uh, of those uh, of those offences. But whilst we were looking into Lee Shakespeare, uh, we also found out that he happened to be uh, at the scene of four fires, uh, and uh, wow. again in different areas of the country. And he was the guy that was saving people finding the fires and saving people. So you know that um, Munchausen syndrome by proxy? Yes. That was Lee Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. We spoke about that in our last episode with Bruce Sackman over in the US. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, no, fascinating. And I, I've done uh, quite a bit of work in the UK on, we call it fabricated induced illness because I'm focusing on children that it happens to. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so we ended up with another trial, this time at Lincoln Crown Court, about another six six-week trial, uh, and both our, our barristers ended up being uh, judges. Uh, Rupert Mayer's a, a judge now in, um, I think, Leicester. He's the presiding judge there. Uh, and Tim Timothy Spence, I think, is the judge in Northampton or something, or the other way around. Fabulous barrister. We have, we have great barristers working for us, and they stuck with us for both trials, and he was convicted. And Lee Shakespeare got uh, 10 life sentences with a minimum to serve of 18 18 years and it was it, the, the complexity of it for me as an SO is that very little other than a couple of the rapes happened in Cambridgeshire uh, they happened in Leicestershire and Staffordshire and Lincolnshire and I mentioned Ibiza and those mm. victims were down in Devon and Cornwall uh, I was very much we were we were the best people I had a fantastic detective sergeant who went on to be a detective superintendent working with me throughout on it as the case officer. Um, we made a decision. We were the best people to prosecute him. And sometimes uh, forces are very keen to say, well, actually, most of it happened somewhere else. You investigate it or, uh, or you investigate it. And it, it all gets put into piecemeal uh, bits and pieces. But I wasn't prepared to do that. And I thought we're the best people uh, to mm. prosecute this. And I did have officers attached to me from the different forces, but we were able to put that structure, that investigative structure into place that convicted him. He fought as 
every inch of the way, uh, whether that was in terms of um, searching, arrests, interviews, the court case. You know, he played every tactic he could, sacking barristers, you know, falling downstairs. Everything that he could, he threw at us. Um, but we, we got him convicted. And, you know, 18 years later, he's, he's still in prison today. Uh, you ever come face to face with him? And, and if so, what's that moment like when you meet somebody who has behaved in such an abhorrent manner and committed such terrible crimes against multiple women using GHB? I think we refer to that as the commonly known date rape drug. You know, what's it what's it like dealing with such an awful, evil individual? Yeah, I, I didn't interview him. Um, and uh, often I used to monitor interviews. And, and that's something I did love was interviewing but this particular case i didn't interview him so my first time that i met him was when he was in court mm. as an SO, because i was running about six or seven different jobs at that time as we were you know heading through the investigation holly and jessica came along within our investigation so you think of the resources that was drawing wow. from from us um uh, but uh, e- even still it was it was in court and uh, our eyes locked together, and um, I, I didn't look at him with any contempt or feel any contempt towards him. You mentioned that I, I looked at him as a person, but he looked at me with such contempt. <laughs> Who was this awful man he was uh, thinking that was pursuing me? Um, but uh, so it was the other way around, actually. <laughs> Would you believe so? So the, the ultimate satisfaction from that particular case is catching someone like that and you think of all the potential victims that you've saved that if you'd been allowed to continue to go on undetected you know and even the behavior could get worse over time leading to the ultimate eventualities of god knows what you know around the world yeah no absolutely that was um you talked about ordinary people doing extraordinary things and that team Without a doubt, and you know my, my role within it, which I hopefully played uh, to the full, and, and I'm sure I did. I mean, the judge gave us uh, commendations at the end of the trial, about six of us, uh, key, key commendations at the end of the trial to say, you know, what an incredible investigation uh, it was. Uh, no, absolutely, he would have carried on uh, date raping because that's what he liked doing, whether those women were interested in him or not. I think it was that control uh, and likewise with the fires and one person nearly, nearly died in the fires. You know, it was a narson and with intent to endanger life. He was very close not to getting out. Um, that would have happened um, without a doubt. Um, so it's really good that an exceptionally dangerous man uh, is, is behind bars and, you know, I really do hope that's where he stays. But I suppose one of the greatest challenges as an SIO is when there's the difference between when you're dealing with someone who could either be mad or bad. You know, we talk about that mad and bad in terms of mental health and issues because these are people that are making decisions which I suppose we'd agree what we consider to be the normal prudent person just wouldn't make. Yeah, I I, um, did wonder uh, whether there was some psychotic illness within him. Um, But his defence team really tried that. Uh, and uh, came out not and I think he was just a bad person Uh, yeah let's talk about um, Christopher Pink another case which you led on which went actually up to the Court of Appeal 
um, through three law lords, um, and there was some incredibly positive feedback in terms of the, the how the case was run, and it was really a standout type of performance from a policing perspective in terms of gathering the evidence and and and, and the way you carried that investigation. For the, for our listeners who aren't aware of Christopher Pink, tell us about him and that particular case you led on. Okay, I, I wanted to when we you asked me about talk about three cases, and I've got many many cases that I, I could think about. I wanted to give you that perspective that we started talking about uh, in relation to uh, where, it, where a child has died uh, in a situation. So, so Christopher Pink um, was uh, a guy who, who met his, uh, his partner uh, on a dating site and moved in very quickly with his partner. Now, I'm, I'm going to shift it around now, not to talk about Christopher Pink particularly, but to talk about the, the baby. So the baby that died was... Uh, Robert Pink, um, so Bobby Pink. So w- when he was born, he had, had a few ailments, but nothing too, too serious. But the parents w- wondered whether he had uh, some sort of mental, uh, some sort of illness. And so they, they looked after him. And Christopher Pink used to look after him at night uh, to watch over him. And then one morning, uh, he, uh, he wakes up uh, and uh, Bobby's lying lifeless next to him. And as it transpires, he'd been shaken by Christopher Pink. And we, we had a big medical investigation, the shaken baby syndrome, but abusive head trauma. And he denied he'd ever done any of this. Uh, so the, the subsequent investigation involved lots of medical specialists all over the country uh, in, involved in it and gave us opinions that all supported what we, what we thought had happened, including having... Uh, um, an investigation in terms of a meeting of all of our specialists. And in fact, um, our, our um, QC uh, was also one of the QCs involved in Holly, Holly and Jessica, uh, Kareem Cahill, and he was the QC for, for the pink case. And I, I mentioned that you mentioned about emotion. So I, I picked, picked the job up and I, I went to the post-mortem. And I parked uh, that morning of the post-mortem in exactly the same place which I parked when I went to uh, the post-mortem to Holly and Jessica at Addenbrooke's uh, hospital. Uh, and I found, uh, Ollie, I couldn't get out of the car. I suddenly no. thought it had been the first post-mortem I'd been to since Holly and Jessica. You know, they didn't roll me out too often in those days as a superintendent. Um, but uh, I thought... I this is really going to affect me. This is going to trouble me greatly. Uh, you stupid idiot. You should have got your DCI or one of the DIs to come. Why are you doing this? And literally, it took about two or three minutes. Uh, it may be a little bit less, maybe a little bit longer, before I suddenly thought, no, I can do this. And I got out of the car and went in, and it was uh, Dr. Nat Carey, same, same pathologist that we had for Holly and Jessica, same two mortuary technicians, a different paediatric pathologist, Uh, and it didn't affect me. Uh, But it just shows you things can hit you from nowhere. And that hit me from nowhere because I didn't think I'd have trouble with it and didn't have trouble with it and never did ever since. Uh, But you just have to watch out for that. Uh, But the post-mortems into babies are really intrusive. Uh, And some of the problems in this case or emotion is Christopher had two, uh, sorry, uh, Bobby had two older brothers, siblings, you know, a mum, all innocent parties in here. And somebody in that home did it. And it's trying to find out which of them did it. And obviously, we focused in on Chris, 
Christopher Pink and convicted him. But never lose sight that this mum lost her baby, these brothers lost, uh, you know, a baby. And, and, and I wanted to highlight that. And again, mm. he fought us at every step of the way. He subsequently admitted that he had thrown the baby uh, to, to onto the bed. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're very complicated, mostly because they're covert homicides. So nothing really seen externally until you start doing your x-rays and your CT scans and your toxicology and uh, your your pathology looking at the brain and pathologies for different organs and things that they're they're more complex than people think uh but that they take a lot of work in order to get anywhere near a charge or conviction they're so complex that you've obviously done a lot of research into this particular field of investigation you now have a doctorate in that speciality of investigating deaths relating to young people, children, babies. Is it something that you've taken away outside of your policing career to both help and to support and to further and, and champion the need for better investigative strategies, more thorough ways to approach these sort of really quite challenging and, as you say, often covert crime scenes? Yeah. I work with a guy called um, Dave Marshall, uh, and we go around the country to various police forces um, running a four-day investigating child death course. Um, so that's very investigator, police investigator focused. Uh, but um, on top of that, I do some multi-agency work uh, in relation to that. And uh, I, I sat, as I mentioned earlier, on the Baroness Helena Kennedy working group. Mm -hmm. So she issued some guidance through our Royal College of Pediatric and Child Health and the Royal College of Pathology uh, for all professionals. So that's whether that's all the medical professionals involved, social workers involved, police officers involved, uh, support agencies to families involved, uh, these guidance. And, and so that's something that I do take around the place. And I've been invited to um, Melbourne and Australia, two universities invited me there to talk on our procedures. Uh, I've been to two universities in Western Ontario. Um, so, um, it, uh, yeah, I, I think the procedures that we've got in the UK are something that can be, you know, of benefit across the whole world, really. Uh, and that's something I, I champion. And, and I've been involved in almost from, since its initiation in 2005-06, when I went to that homicide working group and said, Russell, you're going to lead on child deaths. And brought about that change in culture that it was a multidisciplinary investigation it wasn't a police investigation but we needed to do it in particular with our health colleagues jointly um so i i think that's something i will always champion and have done over over all these years and uh, obviously we've come on leaps and bounds in terms of our ability to respond and investigate those particular matters. Is there still more to do or do you think we're in a good place? Oh, there, there's um, still lots more to do um, because uh, unfortunately people move position all, all the time. They move on or you get somebody new into a different health role leading on it. Um, so there will always be the, those challenges, uh, in particular the coroners, uh, making sure that they, they understand the procedures. Uh, but I think we're in a really good place with those Baroness Kennedy guidance. Um, Helena Kennedy is a very clear thinker. Uh, you know, obviously she, she's a huge 
uh, person in the House of Lords within a legal practice uh, that people look to. Um, so having her endorsement and her leadership has helped bring that about. It isn't Russell Waite says this, it's <laughs> Baroness Helena Kennedy says this. And so I really like having been a person that helped her to say that or in, a, in my small way. <laughs> so in a, in a post-policing career, um, you've also started writing. Uh, you know, on, on this podcast, we, we do speak to an awful lot of people that have written some, some have written extensive books on their anecdotes that they've and their experiences over 35 year, 40 year careers. You've written your first novel, Greed is a Powerful Motive. Tell us what kind of pushed you in the direction of writing. Uh, so in, in my um, post police career, I, I've had a second career where I, I chair safeguarding children's partnerships and uh, I do reviews into uh, serious cases into child deaths. So I recently did Arthur Labino Hughes and Star Hobson being part of a small team uh, that helped to review that case. So lot, lots of cases uh, in relation to that. And so this is like a hobby, so to speak, whilst I'm doing those cases. Um, and I had, um, I, I went to, and I mentioned earlier about my uh, great grandfather was commissioner of police in Baroda State. Uh, I went with my father to the British Library, uh, looked in the India section, looked up uh, various things about my great-grandfather. And I found uh, the story about the Maharishi's son poisoning the British administrator because he, I think he, you know, got into that they were stealing from, uh, from the funds uh, of the country. Uh, and I thought, oh, that'd be a really good story. Put it into modern day. DCI goes out of London. And so mm. that stayed with me for a number and number of years. And then uh, I met a guy that wrote, uh, he's a New Zealander, but he lives in, in Australia, Graham Simpson. He wrote a, a book called The Rosie Project. Uh, he lives in Melbourne with his wife and his wife and I have got to know, she's Professor Annie Buss. And he, he said, the way you need to write a book is like this. And he laid out a 15 minute masterclass on how to write a fiction book, uh, basically in a three act way. And first lockdown in the UK came March, 2020 and I thought I'm going to write that book everybody thinks I'm not going to be able to write that this book it's just Russell Waite talking but I've always been somebody that's a complete finisher so I wrote it in eight weeks uh, wow. start to finish this this in, uh, it needed lots and lots of editing <laughs> but uh, my publisher <laughs> uh, a Cambridge publisher Cranthorpe Milner publishers uh, really helped with that um, as did my family um, and um, in, in essence it's a DCI lives in Ely went to Cambridge University, goes about London. So it's a little bit of a travel log and goes out to India and investigates this death of a British uh, auditor uh, and subsequently what happens there. Uh, and then um, publisher liked it and we ended up, uh, they ended up publishing it last October. And then the second book's due out uh, this October, Missing But Not Lost. Uh, and uh, that in this story, again, same character, works for the Foreign Commonwealth Office, but this time he goes to Canada, Manitoba, uh, to investigate something and uh, a, a missing a missing person. But whilst that, there's a police officer being shot dead in Derby City Centre. Again, based on a story from the 1870s, a real life story. Uh, and uh, what happens is uh, for the readers to see going forward. So yeah, a bit of a hobby and I'm working on the third one off to uh, Bordeaux where, where, where it happens. Uh, on Thursday, my wife and I are going Eurostar to do a bit of final research for, for the third book. But uh, yeah, a hobby that seems to um, 
be doing pretty well. People seem to really enjoy the stories, uh, Ollie, and like my character. But based on all of my investigative ability and skills, so the the investigator, the DCI, is in essence Russell Way, who'd pick this job up, and how would I investigate? So looking back now over your 30-plus years career with policing, what's the, the greatest highlight for you? What do you look back up with, with great fondness? I think being a detective uh, is the greatest fondness that I have, um, be it uh, as a detective constable and through all of those ranks and the opportunities I had in particular as a detective chief superintendent to shape uh, some of the things that we did in particular investigating child deaths. I'd say that's the bit that I I was honoured to be able to have done that. It's been a remarkable insight over the last hour into probably some of the most challenging and confrontational investigations that I think anybody can be asked to undertake on behalf of families and victims who uh, have endured great suffering. Uh, and as I said to you at the start, the, the real essence of this podcast is ordinary people uh, doing extraordinary work and uh, there is no one who that could mean more so than yourself so in, in closing I think firstly uh, we take this opportunity um, to remember both Jessica and Holly uh, and their families thank you ever so much for sharing their stories your story your career uh, and on behalf of me and my colleagues, we, we wish you all the best with your books, which I, I note are available on Amazon and through all major online booksellers. And I would encourage everybody to go out there and to support you and to have a read of what is a, fan, a fascinating insight into a really quite incredible story that you've written. So we wish you all the best with those books and, and anything you choose to do in your post-policing career. Thank you. And thank you very much, Holly. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence, produced, edited, and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.